All right, welcome everyone to uh, the second episode of podcast or Power Moves podcast. So we are absolutely thrilled to have Abby Buckmiller uh, in office with us. So a lot of times we do these things virtually, but we're thrilled to have you in office with us. Um, and this is a conversation I've been looking forward to having for a really long time. So Abby and I have competed. We've uh, competed alongside each other. We've both tried to sort of move and advance the solar uh, cause in our own respective ways. And so uh, really thrilled to have a conversation with Abby today. So thank, thank you for you. coming in. Thanks for having me. Yes, I very much love working next to Complete. And I, just to share a quick story, remember um, my first, I think, dealer relationship in solar space. And someone said, you've got to see the system these guys at Complete have. And anyway, I've been a fan ever since. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So um, I, I think it, uh, I've been a fan from the side as well. So Abby, she uh, was the CEO of Empire Solar most recently, but I think her background goes uh, further back than that. And it's certainly worth talking about. So um, you've been in the office a little bit today and we've had some conversations about uh, your background, which has been fascinating. I didn't realize that we had so many things in common. I think we'll probably end up talking a little bit about that. But uh, so youngest of seven kids, is yep. that right? Yep. Okay, youngest of seven kids and and uh, born in Alaska? I was technically born in Utah, but I was okay. only here a minute. Um, left to Alaska. Yeah, my dad was a, a coal miner who wanted better for his family, which obviously I'm super appreciative of. But he loaded all of his seven kids in a van and we took off to Alaska chasing gold mining was kind of the next big thing. Um, after gold mining, he ended up in oil field work, which was kind of where our family really settled in and found some really good opportunities. So um, he worked up on the north slope of Alaska for years on hitch rotations and got a lot of us into oil field careers, which is a little wild. It's fascinating. So it went from coal, mm -hmm. which people that know me realize that that's my background, coal strip, Montana. Um, and then to gold mining and then to oil mining, but very much so a blue collar type of an approach towards uh, work. And um, I think that I have, and I think you do as well, have a real appreciation for like vocational work generally. Absolutely. Love so trades. most of the people that I went to high school with had a, you know, pursued uh, more of a, what we consider a blue collar path. And I think yeah. that they're some of the happiest, greatest people that I know. So um, back in Montana and, um, yeah, so I was fascinated to find out that you actually come from a similar background as I do. So uh, youngest of seven kids, born in Utah, goes to Alaska, down to Arizona, and then finds your way back to Utah. So yeah. how did you yeah. end up back in Utah? Uh, it was actually my husband, a student at Utah State, um, and I was just in a spot in Arizona where I needed a new... I needed a new start. I needed a kind of a, a do-over maybe. Um, so he was a friend of mine at the time and said, why don't you come check Utah out, stay for a bit. I came out to visit and never went back. And my sweet dad loaded all my belongings in a car and drove my car to me. And I've been in Utah ever since. But that first winter was horrific. It was yeah. terrible. Yeah. You had forgotten what winter was like from the time you had spent in Alaska. Well, I hadn't, yeah, and I hadn't had my driver's license. So I didn't really drive in it. So right. I, yeah, slipped off the road a few times in Logan, Utah. It was a mess, but. Yeah. And Logan, uh, for those that don't know, gets a little bit more uh, snow than yeah. most places around Salt Lake. Do, yeah. So. Um, yeah, definitely a snowier place than Arizona, though. So, and were you like in the Phoenix area? Where, where in Arizona? Yeah, so I went to high school up in a cute little mountain town, super pretty. It's called Payson. Not a lot okay. of people know about it, but um, it's gorgeous. And then after high school, I, I kind of got kicked out of high school and slash graduated earlier through a different program and went to Phoenix and started my career and stayed in Phoenix in a few different apartments and got my start there. So, so your family, specifically your father, he went from coal gold 
to oil. Yep. And then how did you make your way back into working? Because that's where you actually started. Your real career is, is yeah. in oil as well. Yeah, I had had my first baby. I was married and living here in Utah. And he decided that he wanted to go into business for himself and quit the, the crazy rotational shifts in oil. And so he and my brother decided they were going to start a oil field services company. So this meant a couple of guys in trucks and chasing rigs down, helping them rig down, move, rig up, uh, calling like service calls middle of the night and getting them fixed. And he decided to start his own business and said, you know, would you like to help me sort of run the back office kind of thing? And as a, you know, a young uh, person that had already had a decent career behind me in, in management and leadership and, and um, you know, administrative work, I was super excited to kind of jump in there and help them build it. Yeah. And so was it just you and your dad or were there other family members in the business as well? At first, there was three or four of us, a couple of siblings. Um, as the years went on, more family members sort of moved in to help grow and ended up being quite a group of us. Yeah. And uh, family dynamic was, did that strain family dynamics at all or was it mostly good? You know, I think it was mostly good to start. Uh, definitely as the business threw challenges our way and or we grew, it definitely exposed um, the differences in, I think, desires first and foremost. I think that my my father really wanted uh, a business that could be a long-term job for himself and his sons. And I think that a few of us maybe had bigger hopes and desires and dreams, me being you know, probably the guiltiest of all of them. And so I think it did for sure create a little bit of a challenging environment at times. Yeah, so we're, um, I mean, Complete Solar obviously was founded by my brother and I, uh, but we have several investors. That's a question that we've had to encounter. Every time we've ever done any sort of investment round, investors always want to understand what the family dynamic is right. like. And and I think there's a lot of real benefits to it. And obviously it causes some additional challenges as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, but for at least uh, for the part of my brother and I, it's been pretty fantastic. So we actually did have a, another brother and some extended family members that have come through the business. My own son has done some proposal writing for the business at one point. So, cool. um, but you know, we certainly don't think of ourselves as a family shop at all, but uh, um, the family dynamic has been kind of an interesting one. So, I can relate to that. I don't know that I ever really thought of it much as a family environment. Mm -hmm. You know, you just kind of call each other business partners and you just kind of run through it. But challenges i think like a lot of other partnerships for sure but maybe a little worse yeah so you're in the oil business and i had actually asked you previous i think people land in solar or renewables for different reasons some people are really cause driven and i think anyone that spends any sort of real time in solar or in renewable energy becomes pretty cause driven yeah, yeah. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily that's not necessarily what drives us into the industry to start right. with so how did you make the transition from dirty oil I mean that affectionately yeah. for all of my uh, coal mining uh, <laughs> friends yeah. back in Coal Strip, but uh, from the non-renewable energy sources into solar. Sure. It was um, an opportunity that kind of landed in our lap. It was a vendor partnership that said, hey, you guys are here in Utah. You have electrical contractors licensing. Uh, would you be open to trying... Uh, solar installation. We know some marketing companies, sales companies that are looking for fulfillment partners. Um, at the time, we went local work. This is great. Maybe easier work. Uh, oil is, it's tough. It is very boom and bust. It's very feast and famine. And it was, you know, for the, the oil field relationships we had, the price of oil would drop just a bit and we were the first to get cut off of any budgets. And so it was tough work. And I think we jumped into oil or excuse me, into solar thinking this is going to be a lot easier, a lot smoother, a lot less um, volatile. And, and certainly to your point, I was 
blessed by finding a whole lot more insular than I, I thought we were getting into. But initially it started as just an offshoot or an arm of our oil field services company as electrical contractors. Yeah. And only in Utah then? Or? No, we, we had such a great network of licensure um, from, from a contractor's perspective. So initially it was like Utah, Colorado, Idaho, and Nevada, I think was our third or fourth state. But we were, we were expanding really quick right out of the gate because yeah. we already had, you know, footprint. We were already doing work in Texas. Yeah. And Colorado's had its moments. Utah certainly had its moments, but like Idaho, not considered generally a really huge solar yeah. state. But I think you guys had a fair bit of success up there, didn't you? We had some success in Idaho. We didn't really, it was never one of our top five markets per se, right? Um, Colorado was always our just slow and steady. It was a great back pocket market. It was just kind of a workhorse. Um, Texas was a huge market for us, obviously. Uh, three different offices. Um, Nevada was phenomenal for us. It was uh, definitely more of a downhill as far as solar challenges, right? It's just a, a fantastic environment for installing and much easier for us folks, but. Yeah, and so this, and this, this extra offshoot work then becomes what was at the time uh, or, or became a real juggernaut in the solar space, which was Empire. Yeah. And I think uh, em rebranded to Empire Solar Group. Is that what it was called? Yeah, essentially, yeah. Um, I fell in love with it. We fell in love with it. I saw really quickly the opportunity to market to a lot of different sales companies in a dealer type environment and um, said, you know what, let's just start an entirely separate new company, um, which I was a, a larger stakeholder in and, and much more... Um, you know, eager and excited to just build. So Empire was born in 2017. Which is crazy because over the next about three years, uh, Empire, when I say juggernaut, I, I'm, I don't think I'm exaggerating at all. I think uh, your growth was pretty explosive. Um, at, at, at the peak of Empire's success, how many jobs were you doing on a weekly or on a monthly basis? So we were selling about 1,100 or so accounts um, at our peak, and we were installing closer to about 500, 550 or so, um, and just, you know, bringing on as many people as we could as quickly as possible. We were uh, at a peak size W-2 operational employees, about 600 people um, at one point in time, and this was, you know what it was like. This was 2020. Um, remote environment we had laptops left out for people you know in masks and they'd come pick up their laptop and work remote and try to train them it was um a wild time that will i'll always remember in my career i'm sure yeah and how many states were you operating in at the time oh gosh um total at our peak we ended up i believe i want to say 18 states but we had about 24 offices we had three california we had three in texas maybe four in texas it was it was uh it was a lot yeah, so I don't have the statistics in front of me, but uh, at 1,100 jobs a month, that would have put you certainly certainly in the top 10 comfortably, if not the top five in terms yeah. of residential contractors across the country. Um, again, explosive growth from just an opportunistic way to expand your existing labor force and licensure into something that became a really uh, impactful uh, player in the solar space, um, yeah. which is incredible. So did Empire ever bring any of the sales uh, internally, or was it always done through that horizontal special? dealer network. Yeah, it was 100% dealer. We were definitely looking into um, bringing in more of a point of sale, you know, lead gen, other opportunities, uh, virtual into feed both our labor or our, our, excuse me, our dealer partners. But yeah, 100% dealer program. Our focus was on relationships. Yeah. So this is where, again, um, I think you and I could probably talk two or three or four podcasts worth of information about um, you know, sort of like 
the pain and also the benefit of working with the dealer network the way that we yeah. do, the way that Empire did and the way that Complete Solar continues to do. And also talking a little bit about just sort of like overall customer acquisition, sort of like the challenges that we experience. And, and I, I, you know, I speak at some conventions and I spoke at a, a home, sc- uh, home security convention recently. And um, I, I kind of pulled the audience, the home security, which a lot of people go into renewables yeah. from home security. So right. these were more like old guard uh, uh, home security companies, people that have been doing home security and home automation for decades. Uh, some of them family shops, some of them much larger organizations. And I just asked them by, by show of hands, how many of you in the, in, in, in the group here have already done solar? And I was not surprised, you know, less than 10% yeah. of the hands kind of go up. Um, and statistically, depending on where you get your data, it's probably 6% market penetration for residential solar. And this is just after talking for 30 minutes about espousing all of the values of, of solar and why everyone should do solar and, and why it makes sense for all homeowners to do solar. And then I share with them a study that was done, a Pew Research study that was done in 2020 that showed that 46% of homeowners are actively considering solar right now. Wow. Yeah, it's it's crazy, right? And so I ask the question all the time, why is it we're at 6% market penetration when we're at 52% of people either have or are actively considering or looking into it? And why are our acquisition costs the way that they were? So, you know, there's a lot we could dive into there. Um, But I think it's a real aha moment for a lot of these home security companies that are looking for ways to expand their businesses outside of just home security, considering solar um, as a second product offering for them. Um, so it's a real aha moment for them to realize, hey, let's, you know, perhaps there's a pretty tight overlap between the customers that I already have and people that would benefit oh, from going solar. Yeah. But what are the big challenges that companies like Empire and others that are really just kind of contractors or fulfillment companies, what are the big challenges that you, you faced in that three, or I guess it'd be four year, uh, pretty incredible run that you guys had? Oh gosh. Um, specific to Empire, I would say, I mean, you touched on it. Cost of acquisition is very, very high. Um, my personal read on that from an industry perspective is I, I think that it's been, you know, with, with love and respect, I think it's been somewhat of a necessary evil as far as um, ensuring that uh, there is um, an effective market penetration, right? I mean, more and more homeowners are learning about solar. Their um, their neighbors get solar. They're more open and keen to the idea. I do believe that uh, cost of acquisition and method of purchase will be adjusting as time goes on. I think that we'll be eventually moving towards a little bit more of an online you know, acquisition model. We'll see. But um, I, working with those numbers, you know what it's like. It's very, very difficult. Um, we also found ourselves just investing so much in ensuring that our sales teams and our um, our partners were very well educated on the project or on the products that they were selling. Um, that they uh, were, you know, honest in their dealings. Um, just tons of of attention and effort um, and costs. Honestly, going back into investing into that sales force, even though it was a, a dealer a dealer focused or a dealer program, just to ensure that the quality of the deliverables was on point the way that we wanted them to. Yeah. You know, I think, um, you know, when you have conversations with these dealers, what were the what were the the things that you felt? Because you, obviously you were a really effective recruiter. What were the things that you would sort of share with them, the things that would really compel a dealer to want to work with Empire? 
Um, transparency, open communication. Uh, we had a lot of fantastic feedback around our system, um, our, our CRM system, where they could really see their projects and process. They could be sort of a part of it. Um, you know, the, the hope for us with our dealer partners was always that they could sell a project, stay focused on building their sales works and allow our team to really be turnkey. Um, our project operations teams were trained and focused on, you know, hello, Mr. and Mrs. Homeowner. I am now the person wearing the cape. I'm so excited to have you, you know, walk you through this fantastic experience in home services, which, you know, is I think a much longer term play and where I'd love to see a lot of the trades kind of go is, is more of a customer centric or customer focused experience. Um, but that was honestly probably the biggest differentiator. People said you're, you know, easy to work with, fantastic to work with. We, um, we put a lot of care into ensuring that those partnerships were healthy and quality and but to your point on some of the challenges i think uh not having the foresight from a data and metrics perspective pre-sale meaning we saw the orders that were placed we saw the surveys that were booked but we didn't have a lot of the um a lot of insight to the data previous to that because of the business model so we would have suddenly you know volumes dump on us in a minnesota or a tougher turn market or a longer turn market um that was you know seemingly somewhat of a surprise to us and our markets such as vegas where we could install in you know 10 days easily those volumes were dropping on us. And so rather than, you know, in a full service solar company where you have all of your, you have your hands deep in the, um, the pre-sale activity and the lead gen activity, it was really put us in more of a reactionary space instead of a, you know, a proactive space to where we were selling deals, how we were selling deals and pulling them through. So it's a big challenge. Yeah. What was, the, what do you think was the, I mean, I think you're probably talking a little bit to it or a little bit around it, but what do you think was the, the real or the ultimate or the, the biggest challenge that that kind of led to, you know, Empire ultimately having to close uh, close its doors. Um, gosh, I think that that's probably a, a podcast episode. Probably, probably. Is. <laughs> you know, I, I think the to, to stay on the service of us, I think um, at our at our foundation, we had some some pretty weak spots. And unfortunately, you know, time and um, running out of time, not having time for certain uh, things to come together that we had thought would was was it right? But if you just look on the surface, as far as the the challenges in business model, that's certainly one of them. You know, understanding the way that um, we do now and I do now, the importance of cash modeling and understanding how quickly those projects move through your pipeline, uh, and also keeping tabs on those when you're running 24 offices with very different metrics. Um, it's it's a beast and it's a behemoth and you really have to have a sharp team of financial and FP&A folks way ahead of operations. Yeah, I, I, man, we really could do a whole podcast episode on this. So I, I think um, I've, I've told a lot of people, it's an overly simplistic way of saying it, but people can kind of profit themselves way out of business. So you can be balance sheet really strong and cash really poor. Right. And, um, you know, managing it. And and one of the challenges that exists in the United States, and this is, I'm speaking broadly here, but, you know, we have uh, our last, um, you know, guest on the, on the podcast. One of the things he's really passionate about and talks a lot about is the fact that you can get solar. It's got much higher penetration with lower value benefits in Australia compared to here in the United States. And they're at 25% residential penetration with cost per acquisition, total cost 
um, you know, not cost per acquisition, total cost of solar, you know, well below $2. Wow. And, you know, here in the United States, we struggle with so much, <clears throat> you know, red tape and having to understand every single AHJ and, and, and the <laughs> fact that, and you, you had mentioned Minnesota as an example yeah. and, and Las Vegas, an example, and the business operates so dramatically different from one state to the next. Absolutely. And so, you know, as the CEO of empire, you become, you know, essentially the CEO, or you have to have appointed CEOs of each individual little market or a system that can somehow right. bring uh, all of that information together in a single digestible way so that the top leaders right. can make sound decisions. Right. And I think it's a real struggle um, for our industry, unfortunately. Absolutely. <clears throat> I would say the other challenge our industry both has been facing and continues to face is that because of the opportunity on the commission side, on the sales side, um, sales is hand over fist outpacing the labor supply. Uh, we are not going to be able to, I, I'm concerned, we're not going to be able to, to fulfill projects, you know, 12 months from now, even close to the rate that sales is growing and booming. And everyone, to your point, is jumping into the solar arena that hasn't been previously. And so I think that a lot more companies need to be focused on bringing people into the space, <clears throat> training and developing the fulfillment teams for sure. Yeah, I think you're talking about a challenge and an opportunity, right? right? I Absolutely. Mean, um, one of the fantastic parts about our industry, renewables generally, is it's the fastest industry in terms of growth, in terms of employment. Right. So if you want to have a booming economy, you have a privatized marketplace that's hiring more people than any other space is presently. And I think right. that that's a huge opportunity. And, right. and part of it is, is that at the end of the day, yeah, there are some great commissions, but it goes back down to the actual homeowner himself. The mm -hmm. homeowners are beneficiaries of solar, huge right. beneficiaries of solar. Right. Um, you know, I, I I know it's small, it's modest in terms of the percent per penetration we have, but I tell people all the time, you'll never meet someone that has solar that doesn't love it. Right. Uh, and, and in terms of like, to, to be in an industry where the product that you sell is loved <clears throat> universally by the end user is really fantastic. Right. And, and I, myself, you know, it's the hair club for men, you know, the old, the old saying, not only am I the president, but I'm also a member. So, you know, I've, I've had solar on uh, one of a couple different homes over the last decade and I just absolutely love it. So yeah. I'm a beneficiary of the product, the end yeah. product yeah. as well, um, which is exciting. So Same. yeah, you've got the homeowner that loves it. You've got, um, commissions that are really high right now um, that are driving a lot of new entrants into yep. the sales. And then it, you've, you can have, uh, to your point, and it sounds like Empire started to struggle with this a little bit as well, is you were growing really fast on the sales side and then operationally you have to somehow try to remain excellent in every disparate market yeah. uh, while sales is continuing to, to fly. Right. Um, so, um, and was Minnesota, you, you brought that up, was that like your most painful market? <laughs> it was our most painful market, but it was also the market, um, a lot of these, uh, you know, over the phone or remote close guys were just finding extreme success, you know, more than we had expected for sure. And so again, great opportunity, exciting, but yeah, you, Excel uh, Utility in Minnesota was was running um, an, an interesting performance-based incentive for homeowners, which was just peaking a ton of interest and great market, but uh you know, that's just one example how it can, how it can be difficult to keep a finger on. So obviously, 
those were the big challenges that Empire had faced. Um, we talked about high acquisition costs. You said necessary evil. So in your mind, being a solar executive, having been around this for a while, where do you think that the space goes in terms of commissions, in terms of acquisition costs? How do we, how do we further the solar cause um, in your mind? What, how do you see um, the uh, uh, you know, solar progressing over the next handful of years? I see solar as, I mean, the opportunity is going nothing but up, right, for everyone involved. I do think that um, the cost of acquisition, specifically the cost, um, the the overall cost to homeowners, well, has got to, has got to just adjust. It's got to correct. Um, I do see that coming, hopefully, from the sales side. As someone that's been on the fulfillment side, um, it's... Uh, it's it's an unhealthy environment for uh, for the guys trying to get the panels to the roof and to maintain a quality operation. It's just very very difficult. So something's got to adjust. Something's got to change. Um, but I, I think that I think that's it. I think that um, from a uh, from a national perspective, you know, permitting requirements, um, a lot of the red tape that you talk about. I think that it continues to be a little more tailwinds than headwinds, hopefully sooner rather than later. But, um, you know, just just standardized permitting on a national scale, something like that, even the idea of it coming in the next 12 to 24 months excites me so much because that really is most people, as you know, put, I think, a lot more emphasis or stress on on the labor piece or on the completion piece. And that project management piece between, you know, here and here is uh, the biggest challenge, bar none. Yeah. And the project management piece gets so much easier if we could standardize it from Absolutely. one market to the next. You know, you Absolutely. don't have to have market specialists. And, and, and you know, you, you had complimented us earlier, and I appreciate it for doing so. I mean, we really do have some fantastic systems that help us manage through that. Mm -hmm. But we're not immune from having to learn and understand the changing environments that exist within every AHJ. And so it's something that we certainly struggle with as well. Oh, right. So, I mean, changes monthly. It's mm -hmm. crazy. Yeah. There's so much complexity. And, and you hear a lot of talk, you've mentioned sort of a national permitting. That's one that's been, there's been some buzz about mm -hmm, that for mm -hmm. a while. But uh, tailwinds and headwinds are an interesting one because obviously we're in a really heavily subsidized industry right. from the federal level. Right. Um, and a lot of other regulatory things are expected. And, and you know, I, I think um, it maybe is the topic of most conversation on the Capitol right now is what are we going to do about renewables generally? Right. Uh, it was the Green New Deal for a while. Uh, that didn't pass. Now something else is probably in the works. And I hear from people that are in the know that something in the April session is supposed to be coming. Um, you know, but a lot of federal tailwinds for sure. Yeah. But at the local jurisdictional level, it feels like it's a lot of headwinds. I mean, it's how well do you know flow down at the permitting department? It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. You get everything from um, someone at a permit office saying, do you do you need a permit for this? Aren't you just putting a panel on a roof? Uh, that's an Idaho memory I have actually pushing yeah. permits myself um, to different you know areas where it's just the the hurdles you got to jump through. It's it's crazy. And, you know, HOAs are another roadblock that are, um, you know, really, really difficult to get around market to market. Yeah, we we uh, we have found that we can navigate the HOAs, but it adds complexity and it adds time to right. every project, and which in turn adds cost. And, right. um, you, know, uh, it, you know, you have to have people that are managing every sort of HOA relationship. And some HOAs will work with a company and some require the homeowner to kind of do some overly onerous things like, you know, require, uh, requiring signatures from neighbors, a lot of things like that. Right, so, right. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, I've actually been in the solar space for 10 years. So, uh, 2017 
I mean, for, we're, we're still in the infancy of the solar industry right. for all intents and purposes. But, uh, you know, back 10 years ago, we were almost every install we did was either the first one in the city or the first one in the community. And so it felt like we were doing a lot of education for the HOAs yeah. or education for the cities or education for the counties. And, I can relate. Um, you know, fortunately, people are getting a little bit uh, more adept at being able to navigate this, even at the local level, but we still struggle and it's so much different, you know, one inspector to the next. And, right. Um, you know, I've got, I've got hundreds and hundreds of inspections outstanding of jobs that are installed because one random reason or another, we have to go back and do something. Right. So, and, uh, you know, and I say something because it really is pretty random. It feels almost up to inspector mood at some point in time, right? Yeah, it certainly um, is that. I don't know about if you feel this as well, but uh, the addition of other home services at point of sale with solar is a fantastic opportunity and it's driving, I believe, solar adoption so much better. But all of the re-roofing projects or HVAC add-ons, um, you know, the lenders have made it so friendly and easy to add a lot of these different home improvement services. But it, it really, at our level, at the completion level, makes everything very, very complex. You're now managing projects with, you know, hundreds of different variables, truly. Yeah. So did Empire start adding a lot of supplementary services outside we of solar? Did. We did. That was definitely one of the, the biggest challenges we dealt with from a taking our systems that were working, but we were always adjusting for you know, permitting requirements, HOA requirements, or local requirements, and then trying to extrapolate that to four or five different workflows, even according to those, based on what other products and services outside of PV only that we were managing. And so it was a lot. Yeah, that's something that we at Complete Solar are pretty bullish about. So... Um... You know, so many so many of our partnerships presently actually come from other tangentially related mm. residential services, mm. whether it's Dish or right. Internet service providers or home security or you know fill in the blank HVAC and right. roofers. Interestingly, roofers uh, for a long time in the solar industry, they people would think that's like the most natural fit, like do your roof, do yep. solar at the same time. But one of the things that we found is is in working with a lot of roofers and, and a lot of investors have lost a lot of money investing, trying to figure out how to turn roofers into solar people. Right. Is um <laughs> is is that roofers don't actually have like a really long term and great relationship yeah. with their homeowners. And and solar is if ever there were a long time relationship with a homeowner, it's in solar. Oh right. Absolutely. Um, you know, so in, in, in that regard, you're working on the same part of the house, but in terms of the relationship with the customer, it's it's two polar opposites. Roofers are usually one and done. You put a roof on, you never put another roof on. And, yeah. And See if you're talking years. to your roofer again, it's because <laughs> right. you're mad at them because right. they did something wrong. And, um, you know, versus solar, it's a lot different. Right. right. I mean, people Absolutely. put solar on and you have a long term relationship with the solar provider. So right. we have found that. The home services where there's some sort of an ongoing relationship are the most are the, are the most well equipped to add solar as a follow on product. Right. Um, but we we too we're, we're roofing contractors in several of the states where we install. Um, mm -hmm. Part of it is a necessary evil. Part of it is is it's it's a new opportunity in line of business for us. But uh, I just I see so many solar companies that don't drive as much focus on the relationship with the homeowner and i just see it as such a missed opportunity for that reason exactly there's just there's so many other additional home services opportunities throughout that timeline that uh, you know homeowner has a fantastic experience with you as their home services provider it's just it's a great umbrella yeah yeah i couldn't agree more so um and in, the, in terms of the financial markets as well, when you talk to investors, that's one of the things that they're constantly trying to add or trying to understand is right. what does the follow on opportunity look like with your customer base? Um, 
you know, and, and we believe that first and foremost, it's the right thing to do to provide a great world-class experience from the time that you install all the way through for the next 25 plus years. But outside of that, there really is a great business opportunity to be able to continue to work with that customer. Um, right. You know, I wish there weren't so many supply constraint issues with batteries because we get a lot of battery requests right now from our existing customer base. The ones we can't fulfill just because it's hard to get our hands on enough batteries. Right, right. agreed. Did Empire start moving into batteries much before? We did. It was market to market, but yeah, certainly um, Texas after the first, the first the ice first storms. Freeze, yeah, <laughs> uh, Florida was a great battery market for us as well. Really, mm-hmm. Florida? Yeah, yeah. We so California obviously has been our um, is, is is been our yep real critical market, and so we do most of our batteries happen there. But uh, obviously Texas. You know, some of the suppliers actually, because of their limited supply, um, like Generac, for example, they were essentially exclusively shipping their batteries to Texas. They wouldn't yep. even consider shipping batteries anywhere else because uh, there was such high demand there and it was easier to fulfill in one market than working in all the different markets. But, uh, right. you know, so batteries is an example of an area where we're really, um, you know, we're really bullish about, but also have to temper our own excitement just because you can't get enough batteries to meet the demand uh, right. presently. Right. So. Which is a which is a struggle in solar. So, I would be uh, I would abs- one of the things we absolutely have to talk about is is that um, you know I don't I don't know the statistics about this, but if you look across the sort of like major residential or non residential solar companies, most of them have a male CEO. So <laughs> um, obviously Sunrun had Lynn Jurich yeah. and, and they've appointed another female yep. CEO. And then there was Empire and, and Abby Buckmiller. So I'm curious to get your perspective <laughs> as a female executive in the renewable space, uh, you know, um, and and what's really interesting about you as well, and I found this out this morning actually only, is you actually came from oil as well, which yeah. is... I, I don't, again, don't have the statistics in front of me, but I would imagine that's an even more male dominated space, uh, the oil space. But uh, so I'd love to get your perspective sure. as a female executive in the renewable space as well. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I When people used to ask me this question often at you know peak of empire, I, I almost felt like I was letting a group of people down because I didn't have a lot of you know good stuff because truthfully, I just didn't recognize it or I didn't notice much of a difference. And I think um, that's both because, you know, coming up through a family environment in which um, the the strong-willed female of the group became a natural leader is is a great, you know, um, jumping off point that I'm, I'm really, really grateful for. But I certainly look back on some of those, um, those, those interviews now and kind of cringe a little bit because I, I feel like I've, I've definitely had my share. I've had my share of, of perspective building experiences um, as, a, as a female in the ring for sure. But I would say in a general sense, I think that you know, our industry is, is doing better, is doing um, very well at creating an, a nice open um, landscape and environment for women. But I also see a lot of maybe what I would call misguided efforts. Um, this one actually makes me think of Lynn Jurek, the first, uh, first time I spoke with her. This is one that we touched on, but um, you know, the, the female CEO awards, not necessary. Just a, just a CEO, you know, among CEO awards is, is really what, what that was a, that was a perspective both you and Lynn had, <laughs> yes. had talked about. Yeah, she had won a, a, a female CEO award, I believe in um, San Francisco or, you know, something in California. Um, and I, I think that I don't know about you, but I don't know any women uh, that that are really interested in being 
treated differently or seen, you know, differently, we're up for the exact same challenges. Um, you know, and, and that's just how we want to look at it. And so, yeah, I guess I'm a little conflicted about that because on the one hand, I totally agree with you. The job is the same yeah, and your responsibilities to the job are the same. Right. And, and the way that uh, I think you're ultimately judged is, 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 is how well you perform in that role. Right. Um, but the other side of me is, is like, I'm very, I'm very in favor of promoting, um, you know, uh, or, or, or even encouraging, yeah. uh, that, uh, certainly there's no, you know, there's not a gender over another gender that's going to be able to perform better in any right. position as well. And so if you can promote some real powerful leaders, I'm, I'm okay with that, I guess. Absolutely. So. And that's what I would say is there's a lot of, um, men in the industry and just everyone in the industry providing platforms for women, which makes me very, very happy. Um, I think that, you know, you having me on the podcast is one of those. I've had so many men that I look up to in the industry that I've learned so much from who have provided me a platform that I'll forever be grateful for. Um, and I, I think that, you know, it's, it's just things like the, the women panel, you know, and, and I, I personally look at a lot of, um, the the shows and the groups and the speakers and space and i would just love to see uh someone who's different serving on the ceo panel right have a have a woman in there right in the mix because i i think that it's the same thing that translates across creating a culture for your company i think that if you can create an environment or a culture industry company-wide where we recognize that people are different because it provides a different perspective or a different unique value and instead of saying you know don't be different or, or you know, say you are different and that's why we want you here and here's how you can flourish and here's how your differences can help us all as a company or as an industry be different, serve more people, speak to more people and be more well-rounded. Yeah, I've heard it said and I don't have any great data to support this, but it, it stands to reason, at least in my own house, but that women uh, are largely responsible for making a lot of the decisions in the home. Yeah. Right? So it seems to make a ton of sense to me to have some diversity at the executive level in terms of, you know, have great female and male representation yeah. in terms of how you build the business. Um, and um, so I'm curious from your perspective, how how can any business, I mean, take renewables or not renewables, I just just from your perspective, I'd love to I'd love to. And I'm sure our listeners would love to hear as well. How can a company try to increase the diversity uh, to, you know, have more voices at the executive table, more voices at the decision table within the business. And, and why is that beneficial to a business? I think, I think it's that, I think it's um, recognizing that whether it is uh, a woman in a group of men or um, uh, differing cultures and backgrounds and even, you know, ethnicities and even sexual orientations, just different walks of life, different, um, experiences that build us differently uh, bring about an environment where you have a lot of different differing strengths. I am very opinionated that um, everyone has male strengths and feminine strengths within them, you and me. Um, you see a lot of women, I think, that are in both male-run and male-dominated environments who are obviously very comfortable within their masculine traits and um, strengths and capabilities, and that's great. And I know many men that are very comfortable and fantastic within their feminine you know, traits and sides. But I think that if you strip all of that away um, and say that you know, we are a culture, this makes me think of, of an empire memory because I do think that of the things that we did well, this is one that, that I, I feel um, 
a great amount of pride for. Uh, we called it sort of a, a culture of empowerment, but we also, I lovingly called them or our people, our tribe, uh, misfits, because it really was an environment of everyone is feels a little different or a little outside of the norm now and then. Everyone can relate with that emotion. And I think if you create an environment just like in the home or in a workplace where bring your differences, bring those things that make you unique, special and different and voice them bring them to the table, help everybody see differently, think differently, um, act differently, be better in an in a environment where we can lift each other up and also learn from one another. It just creates um, comfort, trust. Uh, it also breeds a lot of high performers. I've seen it myself. Um, it is great for culture, not, not just to do the right thing, but also to run a profitable, um, ahead of the times uh, business that is is prepped for growth and prepped for health. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I'd love to dive in a little bit more to some of the culture building you did. I think one of the one of the things that's been that really attracted me to reaching out to you to have you come on to the podcast at all was, um, you know, you seemingly have some pretty rich engagement within the industry on your like social platforms. So like you post to LinkedIn and, and people pay attention, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's really engaging people. People care about what you care about or seemingly care about what you care about. Sometimes uh, they might disagree with you, what, what you have to say, but they, but they, yeah. but they want to hear what you have to say, which is interesting. So, um, so what were some of the things that you did really, I mean, you, you called it, uh, uh, what you say? Cast of misfits. Misfits. Yeah. Misfits. Yeah. Now, which is, a, an affectionate term, obviously. Of course, you're using it. I'm a misfit. Yeah, yeah. But uh, what were what were the things that you did to really build culture? But then also, I think um, helpful for other people to hear. Like, how have you been able to promote your own brand? Um, you know, as a business leader and as a business executive. You know, I think for better or for worse, I am who I am. I am uh, what you see is what you get, and I am very comfortable being authentic and giving you the real story. I don't, um, I don't fake well, I don't, I don't really know, know how. And, and I, I share that because I think that as a leader, when you create an environment where you can say, here's how I messed up today, or here's what I am not as proficient in as I would like to be, here's where I'm learning and bettering myself, it creates a very human environment where people can again show up as themselves, as their authentic self. Uh, I think a lot of, in corporate a lot of environment, we see a lot of, you know, a lot of the advice is, you know, don't share, don't overshare, don't, don't provide too much in a meeting, uh, be an observer, uh, make sure you're always coming across as maybe the smartest in the room. And I think that, um, building trust as a leader comes across sometimes as saying, I don't know what I'm doing today. We're in this environment, but you better believe that I'm going to find smarter people around me. I'm going to level myself up. I'm not going to, you know, back down from challenges, but also just being real and authentic outward facing to you know the industry and and saying hey i'm not a i'm not a perfect human being by any stretch but um here's what i i am as someone that cares a ton has a, a great deal of empathy i'm also um a very smart person very capable and i'm also probably the hardest working person that you'll meet and just showing up as that authentic version of yourself especially in a leadership role or in a place where you know i've had a platform um given to me to be noisy about those few things can be really compelling again i think it speaks to everybody yeah, I hope I'm an authentic person, but I haven't. Uh, I certainly haven't put myself out there, projected myself out on the 
in, in into the uh, into the internet uh, the way that you have, and and I and I hope this comes across as complimentary as I intend it to be, when I say that you know when Empire was really doing some amazing things and finding a lot of success, you were able to celebrate that, and I think that it was really, um, you know, it was a it was a call to arms for all of the people that were really you know embracing the Empire banner at the time. Uh, but you also shared some, and I and I know that there were some, you know, some kind of darker times as well, For sure. you know, and, and particularly at the end, I'm sure it was probably a really difficult thing. You invest a lot of your time, you know, being a, a business executive and business owner, right. you know, I know that it, it, it's more than a job, um, yeah. you know, and, and, um, and I'm sure those 600 plus employees you have, you, you it, it, it's a, it's a heavy burden that you wear realizing that, yeah you know, these things really do impact people pretty significantly as well. So you, you yeah. were pretty, you were pretty authentic about sharing some of that stuff as well. And, and part of one of, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you come on as well is, you know, rumors swell. Um, and I actually believed and embraced the authentic story that you were telling. And I thought it was fair that you uh, were given as many platforms as possible to be able to kind of share that, that true version and let people kind of know who you were and, and, you know, a, a true story of how all things unfold in life and in business. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I'll say that that you kind of hit it on the head. I think that uh, being being brave, putting yourself out there, um, is tough. And I think a lot of what people fear will happen is exactly what happened to me. Meaning, you know, if it's not your best day, or if it's if it's a failure on your hands, um, you know, there's a there's a lot of people that um, will take that and run with it. I think that to to be a leader, to be a CEO, to be um, anyone in that space uh, and putting yourself out there um, on social media to boot, I think that you just have to be extremely confident and comfortable in yourself, knowing your true intentions, your true efforts. And you got to be um, aware that people aren't going to know the real story because they aren't in your head. They aren't, they aren't riding, you know, shotgun with you all day, every day and all of the decisions that you make and keeping yourself, um, you know, true and in check to those things is, is really all you can do. But, um, you know, I think, I think to the, to the, the point of women in executive roles, I think all I will share is that, um, I would love to see our industry that uh, is full of very great, well-intentioned people that care a ton. I would love to also see, and I would challenge people in that space to, to speak out or stand up against things that feel as though, you know, maybe, maybe they aren't, we're, people aren't acting the way that they should. And what I mean by that specifically is I think that, you know, if you see activity or if you see someone treating someone in a way um, that they wouldn't treat a male counterpart in the same industry or in the same space, you could probably assume that, that there's something to that, right? And so I think that, um, I personally, when I touch back on, you know, looping back to that story of kind of cringing when I say, oh, there's not a lot to say about, you know, being a woman. Um, I hadn't I hadn't been maybe burned by some of those things. And I think the higher you fly or the higher you climb, um, the bigger the stones are that anybody wants to throw, whether you're male or female. But I also think that some that were thrown at me were, you know, a little they were special stones because, you know, of, of me being maybe different. And I, I, I'm personally a hundred percent at peace with that, but I, I feel like I want to help others that come behind me. Um, I'm more maybe protective and I'm more, um, outspoken when I see things that I just don't feel like maybe are right. And so I have a newfound, I would say, passion and mission for creating an environment that I feel like really, truly inspires 
supports and inspires women to not be shy and to step into male driven spaces and really just careers if that's what they want. And if that's, you know, their passion, then I think that we can do more. Yeah. I think certain industries, and I don't know exactly why this is. I mean, you could point to a lot of different reasons and you could get some statisticians and people that understand the demographics better than I do to get on and, and really talk about why certain um, fields become fairly homogenous. Yeah. You know, um, and, you know, we could certainly speculate or even use some intuition as to why that is. Um, some of it is geographical. And so I was actually talking with a good friend of mine and I won't, I won't mention who he is, uh, didn't get his permission to share this, but he's the, he's been the CFO at several, uh, publicly traded companies. And I was asking him, so we're, we're here in Utah and most of the business that he's been the CFO for have been based out of Silicon Valley, but he was the CFO here in Utah. And he was talking to me about some of the unique challenges of hiring in Utah hmm. and having diversity because Utah is. It's yeah. a fantastic place to do business, but it's also a very homogenous environment. Less diverse, right. And, and so I was talking to him, like, how would we as a business approach um, or trying to add additional diversity when the truth is, is that our hiring pools are fairly homogenous? Yeah. And he had some, I think, pretty good advice, which he said, you know, they at, at every role, at depending on what tier it is within the business, they require... You don't have to, they, they, they never imposed hiring requirements. Like you had to hire, you know, different ethnicities or different right, genders, right. but they, they had, a, they had minimum requirements for how many people from every sort of diverse group that had to be interviewed. Right. And I thought that was a pretty interesting perspective. So, um, and the thing is, is that it gets, it, it's pretty easy. Like, if, you know, if you, if you throw an advertisement out and you get a handful of respondents and just by virtue of the fact that we're here in Utah, we're going to get the demographics sure. that are consistent with Utah for that sure. are going to apply for that position. And if you really want to be a diverse organization, you have to be fairly uh, deliberate about yep. making sure that you don't close any of those sort of like hiring um, opportunities until you've sampled from a diverse group of people. Right. And, you know, that was something, you know, I've always been like, hey, get the best person, whomever it is. Yeah. ethnicity, gender. Right. But I think as a, as a company, you might be missing something if you get the best person um, and you just sort of like uh, don't force yourself to look to become an, a, a increasingly diverse within your organization. Right. You know, we're a national business um, and Utah's hiring pool doesn't necessarily represent the distribution of different homeowners that we're going to work with. That's a great point. And um, again, to the point, if if women principally make decisions, like house and purchasing decisions, it seems to me at a business, you'd want to have a diverse perspective within the business For sure. to be representative of, of, at a minimum of, of your customer base outside of the fact that it's probably just the best way to run a business anyway. Agreed. So, you know, it's hard for me to like really advocate for compulsion around these things. Like you have to have this many men or this many women or this many ethnicities, right. because I really do believe, you know, I'm a meritocracy kind of a person. Where I want to reward people for their, their good behavior. But I think as a business, we can all behave better at, at trying to be diverse. And it's, and it really uh, serves our business as well to do so. I love that. I think, you know, what I would add to that is that a lot of members within your organization will recruit for you from um, from a perspective of like tapping into their tribe. And so, you know, meaning you have a strong 
you know, female at an executive level or a higher level, um, and they're naturally going to bring others like them that are wanting to build with like-minded people. Um, same with other cultures, ethnicities, and backgrounds, right? I think that they will reach out to their own pool, and, and we definitely saw a lot of that at Empire for sure. Where we um, we just we brought a lot of people in that wasn't a lot of purposeful um, recruiting. It was a lot of our team a very diverse team, strong team saying, this is the place to be everybody and waving the flag for us and saying, come here, build here, be part of this, this family, this is a place where you can thrive. And so I think that that's where your culture can also lift past a lot of those traditional uh, recruiting methods, but. No, I, 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 I totally get it. And I, I think we actually see that too. So in terms of like promoting from or recruiting from your tribe, we actually at, a, at one period of time, we were about 50% of our customers were Spanish speaking. Yeah. And so we, out of necessity, had to hire a lot of Spanish-speaking people. And as a result, you end up getting a lot of, um, you know, uh, recruiting from a, from yeah. a tribe. So you, you get, we had Spanish speakers coming in. And so a lot of our recruiting happens word of mouth. People like working here. And so they try to bring friends and family along with them as well. So, right. Um, I remember yeah. my thought to circle back to you. Um, I used to shop a lot of our, um, our HR systems. We had a strong HR team for sure. Um, who's always looking out for, for those things, but I would, I would mystery shop different, um, people within our organization and ensure that their titles and that their, uh, salaries were on pace and that there wasn't any sort of trends. And I think that that's an interesting, um, I think it's a smart thing to do as a leader to just Take a peek at those things. Get a get a pulse read for yourself and making sure that the opportunities that you feel that are there are genuinely living true. Hmm. So how, how did, what did that look like? I'm curious. I'm, that, you know, like, that, that's that that'd be something I'd love to do myself. Yeah. We used um you know, there's tons of HR systems that we happen to use uh, Bamboo was one we were on mm -hmm. for a long time. Um but you can you can go into their reporting dashboards and you can pull all of those different stats based on, you know, sex or gender, some of those other things that you're tracking within your system, of course. Um, but you can pull and look for different patterns. And so for me, it looked a lot like, of course, for for women on my team. I I am a woman that has been absolutely paid lesser, even by my family members, because I was female. And it's, you know, it is what it is. There's some there's some um, maybe generational pieces at play. Um, I just want to do better than what's been, you know, maybe that I've had done. So, um, you know, and shopping different uh, tiers and experience levels and just, you know, get get real with your data for a minute and just sort of look at, at the, the metrics that you're tracking and yeah, I think most people, and I, I hope that this is true. I think most people want to do better. Yeah. Um, I certainly do. Yeah. Um, you know, but I think it requires you to be deliberate about it. Yeah. Um, you know, because I think it, it, to your point about just having your own experience, maybe being paid less, even when you were in your family shop, those things just, it's, I would guess that I mean, maybe it was overt discrimination. I don't know, but but I would guess it, it probably more commonly is just um, you know un, somewhat unintentional, but it just kind of happens. And... I think it's deep ingrained traditional thought processes. I've seen women um, very much responsible for paying other women less, and I think there's hmm. this underlying they aren't maybe the breadwinner or there's a secondary earner, and so. Just, just really weird things that I think um, are one of those you have to stop and get real with yourself and go, am I applying something here that doesn't make sense? That's that's one, but a lot of it I chalk up to generational. I think we are doing better. Yeah. I don't want to just say that I'm doing better. I, I do want to be deliberate and take those actions. And, and you know, I don't, um, you know, I, I, I think that we treat men and women fairly in the business, but uh, 
um, which isn't to say that we are are performing those audits at the same level. We do hire a, an outside company that helps us to make sure that we're behaving well. Yeah. Um, that helps us, but uh, you know, I think there are some proactive things that any business can do to ensure that they're that they're one becoming increasingly diverse within the business to be representative of the customer base that they're working with. Yeah. But then two, that they're doing things to um, you know fight against any of, any of those ingrained traditions that, yeah. that might exist. And, and certainly uh, Utah, again, is part of this uh, homogenous environment. It, it's a it's a male dominated um, labor force right. here. And, and so I think that if ever there were a place, I think maybe there's some big responsibility for us here in Utah to do that. I love that. But uh, anyway, so I, I could keep you here for at least another hour, but I would love to uh, just um, talk a little bit about what's sort of next for Abby. I know there's a lot of people that are wondering <laughs> that as well. And so I know that you've got a very bright future as an executive. Uh, I hope that you uh, spend as much of that, you know, energy that you have in renewables, just because I think it's great for our industry. But uh, what what's next for Abby? I appreciate that. Um, you know, I'm taking my time to decide. I think that uh, the of the many, many blessings that uh, came to me from the Empire experience, one of them was getting a real read on what lights me up, where my passions are. And, you know, just like everyone else, I want to feel like I'm in a spot where I am creating an impact, um, making a difference and doing really great things. And so... It's got to be something that, uh, you know, lights you up a lot. And and, and I, I don't know that in my career I've ever stopped and asked myself that, truly. It's been a matter of, you know, someone needs to take a lead here. Um, there's difficult conversations to be had. I'll jump in because that's, you know, something I'm a little more comfortable with. And I've definitely more served a role of see a need, fill a need than what do I love doing? And I think uh, at Empire, for me, the most... Um, the most fun I had was building a culture, building a brand, not just marketing, not just, you know, paid marketing, but um, building something that meant something to people uh, across the board was so rewarding and so fulfilling. And so, you know, jumping in immediately, I've I've popped up a few um, new brands and want to get in the, the e-com space I'm kind of playing with because I, I got to feel like I'm learning and expanding. Uh, but I think that... Being able to be a creator, um, you know, creating value is just, um, is really fun. And I think there's such a good opportunity to also inspire other people through what you create and to do bigger, better, neater things with the value that you're creating um, and specifically creating an impact um, on the world. And so those are those are my big wild dreams. And right now I'm just sort of taking um, everything a little bit of a day at a time and uh, trying to to fill my cup doing those things that make me um, very happy. But I, there's there's so much knowledge that you gain in the solar space, especially, um, you know, I don't know, getting kicked in the face a few times that yeah. uh, there's a it gives me a lot of joy to think that I can share a lot of those lessons learned with people um, that are battling in the trades and trying to to do better and to grow and to to push the movement forward. And so, I love solar. I love um, I love that we're in an environment that creates such a a strong why. And so, still, you know, compelled by that and trying to find my right fit. 
Yeah. I think for a lot of people, their career just kind of happens to them and they yeah. look back and they're like, well, that was, that was 30 or 40 years of my life. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear you're being deliberate about your next move, but you've, you've certainly been um, a strong advocate for our industry and, um, you know, uh, um, a, a, you know, a bold personality in our, in our industry as well, which is great. Um, you know, and I think that uh, we'll, we'll certainly link to all of your um, socials that you share with us uh, for the podcast. But I think it, it, it's worthwhile for our listeners to, to give a follow. And uh, again, I, I, w- I was, I was sharing in all honesty that I think that, you know, for the last little while when, when Abby speaks, people are listening. And I think, uh, you know, for, for anyone that might try to cast shade uh, upon anything at empire, one thing that you certainly couldn't cast shade about is, is that you guys, um, definitely worked hard in the period of time that you guys were operating, uh, to, to, to build a strong culture and to promote overall renewables and, and, and always a really strong advocate for renewables. And, and uh, I, I, you can go back and look, I've, I've, I've liked and shared some of your comments over the years. And so um, I've appreciated your perspective as a, a female executive in the space. I've also appreciated your perspective as uh, just a, an executive in the energy space. And so, um, so thank you for that. But uh, um, I might just ask one last question for you. So what are the things that you think are your big value drivers? Um, that are going to drive the next stages of your career? Hmm. My own internal value drivers. I think that, um, I think that I understand how to create a, a, uh, community and a following, um, and find people that are, are looking for the same thing. And so, you know, that's, that's another way of saying, uh, a value driver is is building a brand from the ground up, and I I uh, that's my zone. That's my that's my comfort zone. Um, I also feel like uh, creating within the home services industry, within solar, um, a greater opportunity to turn what we know as probably the most painful thing that you can do in your home: bring a contractor in and try to ask them to help you um, fix something or improve something. I think that it's a, it's just a blank landscape, um, where, you know, you, you add the right type of intention processes, um, and also a really strong, you know, why to, and I think there's some, a lot of work to be done in that realm, but specifically, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> it's a tough one. I love that it, question. It is you, a got, tough one. you got me a little stumped on it, but. Well, I think, uh, to, to just echoing some of the things you've said. So building a brand is really about mobilizing people around an idea that they already have. Absolutely. You know, and so I think people generally want to save money in residential services. People generally want to do well and be good stewards of their environment and of the world. I think people generally want to make good decisions around their homes, right? These are the things that really impact yeah. people. And, and the reason that it's, I've had as much fun in the residential space and as much fun as I have in the renewable spaces is because at the end of the day, we're not trying to change people's minds, but rather trying to mobilize people around a common idea that they already have within themselves. Right. And I think that's where real strong brands come from. And if you look at the most influential leaders over time, those are the people that have been able to mobilize people around a movement. And that's really what a brand is. And I think that you've been fantastic about that. And been. Thank you. And again, I think um, when we when we spoke a while ago, we, we, we've been certainly spent time as competitors in the space and we've had 
uh, dealers that have worked at your business and in my business. Yep. They're both of them at the same time and they played us, played us off of each other. Uh, but the truth <laughs> of the matter is, is that both of us were better for uh, for having the other in the in the in the in Agreed. the at the same time. And, Agreed. And I, I I am very hopeful for Abby's future for Abby Buckmiller that she uh, spends time within renewable energy just because I think um, you know having really bright, strong willed, uh, you know passionate people in the industry is really what is going to help prop propel us from that six percent residential penetration to that fifty two, you know more uh you know ultimately 100 percent renewable energy here in the country um, i think that's going to be you know i think that you're you've played a critical role already and i think that you've got a much longer story to tell um you know over the next coming months and years so thank you so much thanks, for coming on it's absolutely fascinating to talk with someone that's that's had the experiences that you've had um i'm absolutely uh excited to, to kind of follow and, and and find out what's next for you and um you know i think it'd be a great world if somehow i could uh um, you know, figure out a way to do additional work with you outside of just being uh, uh, frenemies in the space. So let's do that. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. But again, thank you so much for coming on. So. I appreciate it. Appreciate it.